Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? I argue that they're also using these drugs to hurt the uh, hurt the competency of, of these anti-war leaders. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grey America Show. We're going to be chatting with uh, John Potash a little bit later uh, about drugs as a weapon against us uh, by the one and only CIA. But first, as always. Weepy Graham. How's it going, buddy? Hey, not bad. How you doing? I, need, I really need people to send me in things to say because I got Weepy nothing. Weepy Graham? Ever. Well, it just relates to something we were just talking about. People get it when they look at the Easter eggs for Napoleon's webcomic. Okay. Yeah. Have I you tried. checked that out yet, Red? You I cried during a drum solo, Red. So, oh. Yeah. I cried all the time. And, you know, I, I, I just saw... The complete Toy Story trilogy the other day on Netflix, and I was Toy Story. My, uh, yeah, fuck you, man. I like Toy Story and I like Pixar. And if I if I want to cry with Woody and Buzz Lightyear and Jesse, I have the right to. Oh yeah, I guess it got a little sad there. Yeah, totally sad, man. So so Red Red Pill Junkies with us, and the listeners love our listeners love to hear. Hear from you, Red. Um, it's good to have you here. We we had this chat with John Potash coming up here on this show. Uh, it wasn't only the CIA, but it was it was a huge huge book here talking about drugs as a weapon against us. Um, all kinds of pop culture influence from from the CIA and other governmental organizations, basically propagating drugs as a way to. It's kind of like that counter conspiracy thing where drugs are used to kind of tame down the protesters and kind of, you know, throw people through a loop like that. Which I don't really buy. But well, then again, I'm, I, we are all aware that the CIA was uh, directly responsible for the introduction, the mass flooding of drugs like, like cocaine into the American streets. So maybe you could make the argument that in a way, you know, those kind of drugs were used against certain demographics, and uh, uh, I would say, like maybe uh, minorities and minorities, exactly. So maybe that you could say that you know, I mean, if you see the populations in in American prisons, you know, people who were incarcerated because of drug charges, you know, I mean, most of those people are in are minorities, you know, are people are of african-american descent hispanic descent so that argument i i got i can totally buy yeah so i agree with you on on that the interesting part about this book was more about um the psychedelics and how mm. how there was influence behind that as well which seems to me like it's it's counterintuitive from my point of view because they seem like more you know when you talk about lsd and ecstasy and this type of thing they're more kind of enlightening drugs right but i guess there's another side to them that that he shows and he's got tons of footnotes in his book here and it's uh it's quite amazing it's kind of mind-blowing so it's one of those reminds me 
Yeah, reminds me of this link I, I recently posted at the Daily Grail, you know. Uh, this, uh, someone sent me this very cool video. Uh, it's like um, made with the drawings that which were part of a 1950s uh, LSD study, you know, back in the days when it was kosher to yeah. do scientific research with, with LSD. So this particular uh, study was... Uh, using uh, an artist as a test subject, you know, he was administered uh, two doses of five, 50 micrograms of LSD, and he was asked to do portraits of, uh, of the doctor who gave him the dosage as, as a model, right? So you can see how uh, he starts to draw, you know, very uh, naturalistically, you know, and then he's slowly becomes progresses his art starts to to be abstract and freer you know very very trippy you know and by the end of the day it's complete like he's drawing picasso like uh, a sketch of the, uh, of this doctor you know so so in other words that could, would be bad or good no well i think it's good <laughs> depends you know, on your I view that, of picasso yeah well exactly you know when you, what you can make the argument that if anything, LSD lets opens your mind to different avenues of perception, which can also boost your creativity because it lets you see the world from a different lens, you know. And I, what I mentioned in one of the comments, you know, when someone asked me, when, what, what, what do you think of this? What do you think this means? What I said is that these substances could uh, help a good artist become a great one, but I seriously doubt it could. They could make an a mediocre artist become a good artist. You know. Mm. So what I what I mean is that these substances, and I I, I always believe this. Uh, well, even more now than ever, that these m substances boost whatever it is that it's already inside of you. You know what I mean. So that's why when you give LSD to someone like Ram Dass, you know, he becomes like a great spiritual teacher and a guru and a very loving man. You give the, the same, the same substance to Charles Manson, you know, he becomes a psychopath, you know, and he, the leader of this, uh, uh, murderous cult thing he was running. And, you know, it is, it's the same chemical, you know, but completely different results. That's interesting. Yeah, he definitely it tells a different different side of the story from from what we're used to hearing, which is it's kind yeah, of good. well, it's definitely it's going to be uh, something that will fascinate the Gramerica audience. Yeah, there's not too much of me in there. I was on the phone with my wife most of the time, and she was on the side of the road in Ontario with a flat tire. Um, oh, so, so oh. Between her and AMA, I missed most of the interview. I got a few questions in. Okay. So. Or, America. Yeah, it was another Gramerica. So how you doing, Red? What's going on with you? Well, I'm, you know, blogging more than ever nowadays, you know, because thanks to the quote-unquote free time in my hands, and which is good, you know, and really uh, allowing me to explore a lot more uh, interesting stories, you know, not just the typical, you know, UFOs, Roswell, and all that, you know, which, in my opinion, it kind of gets kind of boring in the end. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what are you, what are you, what are you interested in? 
Well, like, like, uh, like I said earlier, you know, I'm fascinated by the artistic and creative process. You know, I am uh, the the questions uh, the creative process uh, brings to the table. You know, whether it's solely the, the the result of the genius of the artist or whether the artist is channeling you know the, the information from an outside source and bringing back the idea of psychedelics you know how we have learned through uh, new scientific tools like uh, mri scanners and all that how these substances are used to they tend to quiet certain parts of the human brain you know arguably the ones that they are constantly ch uh, chattering up inside your head you know trying always interpreting what's in front of you and by definitely lessening the, the 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 dominance of those sides you know it kind of makes the mind more receptive to what's you know in the background that the kind of things that we tend to not pay attention to. or or that we can't pay attention to yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's interesting. You're talking about that because, so well, Darren and I just uh, recorded an intro for Matt Swain's uh, episode, which will be out by the time people hear this. And we were talking about. I was asking him about creativity because Matt Swain's book was about haunted rock and roll, right? A lot of these musicians who have had strange experiences. Mm -hmm. And we I was asking to this, are we? Well, we might as well because yeah, Darren, you know, Red's talking Red, about Red's it. Red's a mediator now. So. So my, my feeling is that I think there's an inordinate amount of creative artists who, whether they're popular or not, but it seems like a lot of the popular ones have had strange experiences, other hauntings or UFO experiences or occult experiences. And yeah. I was asking Darren, like, do you think that what comes first? Is it the experiences that are creating the artistic creation or is it the creation that is, it is opening them up to the experiences? Yeah, the age-old chicken and the egg question, you know, and, and I, I'm also fascinated by that, you know. Now, uh, recently, uh, this uh, legendary UFO sighting John Lennon uh, purportedly had, you know, became, became came in the spotlight of the news, you know, because of this sketch that someone uh, thought or something and people were uh, discussing whether it was legitimate or not. But regardless of that, you know, the fact that John Lennon was really fascinated with UFOs and uh, even Yuri Geller claims that uh, he once talked about UFOs with John Lennon and Geller is convinced that Lennon was uh, you, uh, an alien abductee, mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and even if you don't go that far, you know, there's also David Bowie and there's also all these people who have been always being fascinated by 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 strange phenomena, the kind of things that came to be poo-pooed by a scientific uh, academy. And this is one of the reasons why I totally agree with Mike Leland. You know, Mike Leland sometimes, you know, people tend to criticize uh, his work and his research and they tell him, you know, hey, the way you're conducted, your research is not very scientific. And say, well, I'm not a scientist. You know, and I I will go as far and say that maybe artists are better equipped to understand, to 
to really mm. grasp this kind of phenomena than a purely left-brained kind of too analytical personality. So, know what I mean? so yeah, yeah, totally. So, so the creative first uh, opens yeah, well, up, opens the, up the experience as opposed to as opposed to some outside influence of the experience creating more uh, art artistry. Maybe, or, or perhaps um, the holistic aspect of perception, which can bring a, bring about creativity, may may be also responsible for some of the aspects of this uh, what we still we still call paranormal phenomena. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I've changed well, my I've changed yeah, my stance on the chicken and the egg. But not on this subject. I okay. still think that the ratio of creative people who have uh, experiences is the same as regular people. Maybe they're just more apt to talk about it. Oh, okay. It's it's a valid point. It's a valid point. But the fact that they are more uh, open to talk about it, you know, and it's what really drives our our culture forward. Yeah. And I think the egg came first. The egg had to come first. Something that was almost a chicken, but a little different, laid the egg that became the chicken. Yeah, obviously, obviously. You know, fish lay eggs, so. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. I think it came from directive panspermia. That was the, that was the, what created the chicken. In the oh, egg. yeah. Um, did you guys check that? directed uh, gram spermia? <laughs> Did you guys check that uh, news about the this scientist who's always been, uh, you know, propagating or, or uh, selling the idea of panspermia? He was now saying that this kind of black ooze that was reported in, on the Rosetta comet yeah. uh, was proof of panspermia. And once again, you know, the usual suspect starting to, you know, uh, criticize him and play it down and say, no, no, this is not really, you know, that black ooze or whatever, you know, it's not proof of a, a microbial alien life. Well, how, how can it not be though? I don't understand. If there's ooze on a meteor and it's going to, yeah, but it's maybe go, it's, go the ahead. idea is that, well, I haven't read the, the, the counter arguments in depth or, you know, Dr. Chandra's, you know, hypothesis. But, you know, maybe they, they are saying that it's a result of uh, maybe hydrocarbons or some kind of um, inorganic or organic chemicals, but not necessarily, you know, uh, actual, actual life. Oh, oh, I see. Right. Right. Hmm. It seems to me like if you have an ooze, it's, I don't know, there's got to be something in there. <laughs> don't you think? Dead, oh my god well what we're what we're you're really found, degrading what, what do you what mean you, uh, it. i think you're mine out of the gutter man no 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 not i mean he's he's legitimately <laughs> criticizing me here because i think that there'll That's... be microbial life in an ooze right do you think it's just a bio like it's just an organic like metallic ooze with no microbes like mercury <sighs> okay maybe Okay, Red, take it, take it from here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm speechless. Well, I don't know, man. I think that the guy raises an interesting idea. Probably doesn't have 
enough evidence to support his hypothesis. I think that's that's the problem. You know, there are, uh, our current paradigm still demands uh, too big uh, uh, and uh, the brunt of of evidence in order to, to actually, you know, make the leap. Even though you know panspermia is a well-established scientific theory, you know, which has gained a lot of supporters in the last few decades. Yeah, but but it's yeah. still not conclusive. I think in the mind of, of of many scientists, I think my version of panspermia is that life is just like I don't know. Maybe it's got something to do with light or some sort of other like wave energy and it's just like everywhere if conditions are right or conditions can be met then it happens it starts to happen we may never know how or what the fuck's going on but it's just like a computer program as soon as the parameters are there it starts to build yeah the cell some kind of self-organizing principle in the new universe which uh, spontaneously will conduce to the origin of 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 life or even complex life if the, requ the, the enough requirements are met yeah hmm. in different waves and in different capacities so maybe yeah. someplace like Europa it's carbon, can, maybe it it's can, carbon based somewhere and sometimes it's not carbon based yeah whatever is around silica based hmm. and you're the alien so before I forget, I, I want to mention um, a couple local things going on here for the next few podcasts. I just want to sort of plug a couple things. Um, the modern knowledge people that put on tours and, and live events and stuff like that, they've got uh, an event coming to Calgary. I think on the last show, I forgot to mention the date, but it's August 22nd and it's Nassim Harriman, Marty Leeds and Patty Greer. So um, I'll just read the titles of their presentations. Uh, Nassim's is the connected universe of fundamental transformation of human awareness. And Marty Leeds is deconstructing the mathematical foundation of the English alphabet. And Patty Greer is talking about crop circles, the keys of wisdom. Uh, that's coming up in August 22nd. So I'm going to link to that. They're also traveling uh, in all the cities, uh, not all the cities, but like Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, different speakers in different cities. Some of the speakers repeat in some of the cities. And then I also uh, got an email from somebody in the CSETI group, and she's doing, um, looks like some contact exercises, some ET stuff going on in Alberta at the end of August in Calgary. So if contact people are interested, in contact in the prairies instead of contact in the desert. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so, so if people are interested, please email me and I'll try and set something up. Uh, maybe to join in with a night that's already going on or to just have our own, our own Grimerica Cicetti night. Oh yeah. And send uh, in your crop circle patterns. Don't send in your crop circle patterns. <laughs> and, uh, the crops, they are ready. And also, um, Randall Carlson and, and, uh, Edward Nightingale are coming and they might be coming with, uh, some more people. I mean, Bill Loeb, our listeners is, sure. is joining them. So we get to meet these guys. We're going to, spend a couple of days with them hopefully uh we might even be able to set up a, a presentation at a venue for people to come so keep so uh, keep your eye on that that would be great but that's going to be a challenge because it's like a month away and i'm yeah we don't have a lot of time very, to plan all this at the very least i think we plan to have them in the igloo 
uh, nice, possibly nice. for a bonfire. And then Ooh. we, I think we plan to, Man, to trail them down me, the road. Making for, me envious, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then they're going on a little road trip. And I think, uh, Graham and I are both going to take the Friday off and just tail along with them for a day or two with their new Tascam recorder that our supporters helped us get. Um, and our new memory card will be in by then. So we should have enough for, I don't know, roughly 60 hours. So we won't run out of memory and just keep talking like just I did in the talking. car. Yeah. <laughs> and you, are you planning to do something with that footage? You know, maybe release some video clips on the Great America I don't know. YouTube Cameron's channel? Cameron's going to be there. So I'm assuming that they're going to be filming in some sort of capacity. Okay. If not, I have a video camera. By all means, I'll film oh, some you? shit. Yeah, hmm. I got two kids. That's not one that's hiding in your bedroom, or yeah, two kids need a video camera. Well, you don't use your phone. You just use you actually you have an actual. No, video it's camera. too much of a pain, right? It? You don't yeah. want to be one of those fucking dopes at the reception holding up the phone. That's so you I mean. just hold up a video camera instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or you, some people are you holding think it their looks iPad. Better? Like, like, yeah, it looks better. Why? Who, what, what, people are holding It's a device that you're holding to record. It doesn't matter what the iPad blocking oh, it you, you. look more professional. A video camera takes video better camera. footage, too. I'm saying, look at this dad. He loves his children so much that he was willing to spend $400 on a video camera <laughs> instead of using his iPhone. <laughs> it's only a hundred and some bucks. Yeah, I agree with you though. It holds more. It holds more data in there too. You don't want to run out on your phone and have to worry about where to put those videos all the time. Yeah, exactly. So that's uh, that's that, and and then uh, that's a good time to bring it support. Are you done? Well, we also have Craftwork doing a three D concert in Calgary coming up. Yeah, Craftwork three D concert. Yeah, yeah. You should look it aren't, up. Brad. It's aren't all concerts three D? No, this is like a three D presentation <laughs> with the music. They're electronic robotic music it's pretty cool it would probably work if you played it this time would it but don't ah red red wouldn't hear it i think but everyone else would okay it's okay i won't bother so that's it that's all i got yeah so uh we'll talk about our task cam recorder that you guys bought for us uh perfect time to bring up grimerica.ca slash support um that's just the sort of thing that that helps us take on helps us take on the new studio which opened up a lot of different avenues for us um, we can broadcast a little later now. We've got a lot more freedom out here without keeping my family awake. And, uh, yeah, it may or may not sound a little better. It's definitely a lot more comfortable with our ceiling mounted and everything like that. We, yeah. we can really do what we want in here. And all that is thanks to your support, uh, grimerica.ca slash support. Value for value, right? No value ads, value, no, yeah. no if, breaks, no commercials. Nothing. If no so, sponsors. If you feel we've provided you a little value, then, uh, go ahead and. And throw us some our way, whether that be monetary or by signing Feedback. random people up for the newsletter or by spamming Graham or leaving a review or just uh, patting people on the back and telling them about the show. Anything to add, Red? Oh, yeah, a couple of things that uh, my good friend and colleague, Brent Swanser, you know, who just had his first ever podcast interview with our friend Tim Binal on Binal of America. Oh, fuck, we he almost got that too. You know, I had, we well, had him almost Now it's going to be even harder for you because he's jumping to the big leagues. He's going to be the main guest on Coast to Coast on July 25th. July 25th. Mm. Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, 
It wasn't me that I forget what happened. We had it all lined up and then his, he got busy with a teaching schedule or something yeah. again and he yeah, had to, had to reschedule, yeah. but I did email him the, the other day. So that's great. What's that's, he, what's he talking about? Uh, Red? Well, all sorts of things, you know, I mean, his main key is this cryptozoology and in particular Japanese cryptids, you know, because he is living in Japan and that uh, has allowed him to research uh, cryptids which are usually not heard of in the West, you know, I mean, if you're a fan of cryptozoology, then you know about the three main ones, right? I mean... Bigfoot, the Yeti, and the Loch Ness Monster, and maybe now uh, the Chupacabras and all that. But uh, with Brent, he, he is also researching uh, different kinds of uh, more obscure Japanese scripts like the Hibagond, you know, which is kind of like the own Japanese version of Bigfoot. Um, he's also starting to branch out into other Portian subjects, you know, not just... Uh, strange animals and well he is right now one of the most popular bloggers in mysterious universe you know and i'm sure that by the time he appears on coast to coast you know our friends brent ben and aaron are going to have to do something to strengthen their server because they're going to get an onslaught an onslaught of uh, of massive hits coming their way so yeah, do we have time to get him on before he goes on coast to coast or no, what? But we, I don't think we get him before coast. I'm gone till then. You're gone till the 22nd? Unless we could get him this week. Or that Friday the 24th. Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday this yeah. week. Or that Friday. But I mean, right after coast is fine too. No, I meant for practice. Or, oh, for, for practice, yeah. I meant, you know, because... I don't really care. It'd be nice yeah, to get him on so he can practice with us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's really getting cold feet getting a bit nervous because like i said you know coast to coast is undoubtedly the biggest uh, paranormal 14 radio show uh, probably in the whole world you know i personally will be shitting myself you know if i was invited to, well what, we to could do that friday yeah. before if you want to line up he could practice with us the day before he goes on coast well yeah maybe uh, let, let, let me check with him you know uh, uh, maybe we can set something up and and that that Friday could be anywhere. And I'll release it that night. It could be afternoon. It could be afternoon. Actually, we could do it that night. We have enough. We have enough flexibility to do that. Well, let's let's email him and Even see. Even Thursday, if, or if you're not busy, no, I could do the Thursday or the Friday because I get home Wednesday. So so red. If it's the Friday, we have some flexibility with time. We could do it in the mid afternoon as opposed to like late night. So email right? me with the uh, schedule proposal you have you know with yeah i'll email you night, after uh, later on tonight i'll email you with we'll figure okay. out what we can do what days are available between now and then and i'll i'll email email it to you okay perfect um we should probably wrap this up almost caught me off guard almost forgot the profound ufo quote of the week see what red thinks about this one the ship reported Emerging out of the ocean, near port bow, a brightly glowing reddish-orange elliptical object of probably 70, approximately 70 feet in diameter. It shot out of the water, traveling at about 700 miles per hour. The event was tracked on the ship's radar and substantiated. That was from Dan Willis, Naval Code Room Operator, the U.S. Navy Communication Station, San Francisco, speaking about receiving a priority message classified as secret from a military ship near Alaska. 
nice. Yeah. USOs, you know, one of yeah. my favorite topics. I know we should. Uh, oh, we should focus on that one one day. Do an episode on that. Yep. All right, Darren. Line it up. I will. Expo is coming back. Yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm going to post something about this new released. Uh, the first scenes from the new series on Grey America. <laughs> <laughs> no, for the Grey Element. I'm very excited about it. You know, I'm, I was a big X, X Files fan. Yeah, me too. Even the movies were good too. No synchros uh, or nothing. This, the last one wasn't that good. No synchros. No, nothing. that's it, buddy. We gotta we gotta record soon here. So. Oh, we got ten minutes. <laughs> Send us your synchros. I need to play more jingles. Uh, thanks for joining us, Red. Yeah, anytime, guys. Yeah, enjoy the chat with uh, John Potash. We're going to be talking about, well, Graham's going to be talking about all sorts of fun stuff with John. And uh, we'll pick you up in the outro. Okay, guys, in Grand America tonight, we're going to be chatting drugs as a weapon against us with John Potash. Uh, but first, how's it going, buddy? After it, all our troubleshooting again. Hey, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, it seems like we're, no matter how many in, times you do it, have it figured out. there's always some technical difficulties. So yeah, as, as Darren mentioned there, we've got John Potash here. Uh, John's got a master's in social welfare, social welfare from Columbia University. And he's written a couple books, really fascinating stuff here. His first one was The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders. That was from 2007, I believe. He's been on C-SPAN's American History TV. And he's uh, been published in a few papers like the Baltimore Chronicle, City Paper, Covert Action Quarterly. He's also worked uh, counseling people with mental health, health issues and addictions. So there's lots to get into. His latest book... You can tell he's put decades of research into this one. It's called Drugs as a Weapon Against Us. And it's the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. So it's a, it's like an encyclopedia of what's been going on in our drug culture in the last couple of decades. So um, thanks for coming on, John. We're really looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Graham and Darren. Yeah, it's... Uh, Thanks for uh, putting decades of research into this. It's an interesting take on this. I mean, besides the whole, you know, like confirming sort of some of the conspiracies about the government's involvement in in the drug, you know, the drug culture and the drug war, it also kind of gives us a different take on 
I don't know how damaging some of these drugs are that people in the pop culture, you know, may think of as sort of enlightening. So can you, I guess, can you summarize, like start out by summarizing um, the gist of your book maybe, and then we can get into some of the finer details. Sure. Well, yeah, the, um, the overview of the book is, is about how these uh, people that were involved in drug shipping early on, their early uh, centuries ago kind of gained dominance in our society, um, mostly American society, but also British society, um, through the banks, Julius, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, top American, you know, top bank in the world, actually, according to Forbes magazine, uh-huh. and HSBC, um, and which is one of the top European bank. And so the, these families that were involved, that, that uh, benefited from that uh, opium shipping way back um, were also uh, connected to the opium wars against China that then led up to uh, using drugs as weapons against us in general. And uh, an operation called MKUltra was the, the kind of framework operation for testing out drugs on people and then using them in what they call unconventional warfare and that unconventional warfare is not about just using that on a battlefield. It's, it's plain, you know, they, I show the evidence that they say the battlefield was our cities, you know, our, our country and, and societies in general. And, um, I'm sorry, I hear a lot of noise. I don't know if that's, uh, if you guys hear that. Is, it should be it, in the way. Yeah, it should be better now. Darren's just had to jump out for a sec here. So it should uh, be, it okay, should be no quiet problem. now. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. I just didn't know if I was, uh, you know, we were still one and if I was getting yeah, away. Yeah, that's all good. But uh, so anyway, so the um, the use of uh, of drugs as weapons against us is, is what I detail. And the MK Ultra program um, first experimented with at least two dozen drugs on um, Edgewood Arsenal soldiers, and they also uh, experimented with these drugs on prisoners. Um, hospital patients. They started a, a CIA front company called the Human Ecology Fund, which funded professors um, at over 100 different colleges and mm. and, uh, and also dozens of hospitals that tested uh, drugs, particularly psychedelics, on different people. And then I show how they they then followed through on using them in undercover operations to spread um, acid all over the place. Um, but particularly through musicians, they convince musicians to use acid and other drugs to popularize them and uh, show how they, the similar tactics were used with heroin and cocaine and uh, possibly weed too. But the uh, psychedelics is the, is like the biggest focus because of um, the problems it seems to cause people. Yeah. It, you know, it doesn't appear to cause mind expansion, but you know, um, studies seem to show that it possibly causes some damage in us. And, um, and ecstasy is another drug that they use in this way. And there's more clear cut damage with the ecstasy and causing memory problems and, and possible long-term depression. Yeah. But, see, that, that's the, that's the hard part for me to wrap my head around is I can see this, this conspiracy with drugs like heroin and cocaine, let's say, but when it comes to psychedelics, it's harder for me to wrap my head around this because, you know, because of the sort of quote unquote enlightening experiences or enlightening properties, like even, you know, ecstasy being sort of a love drug or whatever, it's hard to, 
And, you know, you hear a lot of the opposite of what you're saying, which is that the, these, you know, acid or ecstasy don't cause any long-term damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, look, I, I felt like it, uh, it, it hurt me. I, I think I ate maybe a half dozen hits of acid the first year of college, and I saw my grades drop drastically, and uh, it took about a year to get them back up, and, but I, I never regained some skills. But um, I've counseled, you know, loads of people over the last 25 years who have given, given similar accounts. Um, I showed four medical studies that show that there is some cerebral damage, and they were coming out with these studies just after psychiatrists had been giving them legally for, for 10 years trying to use them for a therapy. And so, it, you know, it was an embarrassing thing to come out with these, these studies after they'd been giving them, you know, legally for 10 years. But, um, you know, but I show more so the politics behind it. When you have these uh, CIA agents, you know, the CIA was caught as the number, the top trafficker in the world. Um, a guy named Ronald Stark was found to be um, with the U.S. intelligence since 1960 when he was caught uh, trafficking estimates ranged between 50 and and 200 million hits of acid, but he had uh, acid laboratories on you know, several continents. And um, you know, it was clear that, and I show all kinds of other CIA agents involved in pushing acid on, on so many activists and youth in general. So um, if you knew, of course, I show the history of the CIA and how, how malevolent their history is that you know, they weren't trying to expand our minds and enlighten us. <laughs> they were trying to divert us and hurt our, hurt our abilities to do the best activism. Right. And so it's just a number of different you know, ways I show that, um, that acid, the idea of mind expansion was something that was uh, conjured up by the, the media, the mainstream media, which is, you know, I show, have a little chapter or two that shows how much the media is controlled, mainstream media is controlled by the CIA and the wealthiest families um, in order to try to pretend like it's called, you know, it's called, it sparks mind expansion when it really makes people less competent, you know, this was the way William S. Burroughs put it. It was no crude when it comes to drugs, having had heroin addiction himself. So that's the new take on, on acid, you know, but I also have chapters, of course, on cocaine and heroin, because those are more obvious as what, you know, it's called the opiate of the masses in the way they tried to, you know, hurt communities with uh, cocaine and heroin. I wonder, uh, you know, acid has always been one I've kind of been on the fence with, too, because it's just, it, to me, it doesn't seem as wholesome as a big old bag of mushrooms like it definitely so seems you, like you there's a gambling here you well oh, one more time i said uh, acid's always been one i've been kind of on the fence with i mean i've partaken a few times over my uh 34 years but it's always kind of had that effect on me or that that i guess symbiont said it could be you know it seems definitely a lot more of a risk than a bag of mushrooms mm-hmm yeah, I don't cover mushrooms, but uh, acid is uh, yeah is much more worrisome um, because it's I, made in I, a factory, right, or made in a laboratory. I guess that's where I sort of draw the line right. of what is natural. Yeah, things that grow out of the dirt, I really have a hard time believing. I mean, I guess there's poisonous berries and all that sort of things, but I find it's less to do sort of long term damage than things that are made in a lab, pressed into pills. It does seem like psychedelic. I mean, I I didn't study psychedelic mushrooms as much, and I didn't I didn't find as, uh, as much of damaging any damaging necessary possible you know uh, outcomes with psychedelic mushrooms. Um, I think psychedelic mushrooms and maybe any problems they cause is only short term, 
whereas the acid is more long term. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that the, the natural aspect of psychedelic mushrooms, they probably are much less worrisome than, uh, not that everyone should go out and do shrooms, but um, they, they don't seem to cause the same long-term issues as acid does, so they are less worrisome. Um, now, with weed, it's, you know, and, and psychedelic mushrooms, again, I'm not promoting them, but they're, um, they don't seem addictive. Whereas um, now weed, the problem is even though it grows in the dirt, um, it's, it'd be fine if people could just use once a month recreationally, whatever it might be, but the, it, you know, the weed, it has gotten stronger and stronger and appears to be somewhat addictive. And, and I don't have a moral stand on it, except you know I, I think it should probably be decriminalized because I don't want to see you know, use it to, get, to give people felonies and get them legal charges and get them under so many people under legal authority's thumb, and I don't want to see that. And I, I quote Michelle Alexander on the way that's used, drugs are used in that way against us. But on the other hand, uh, I, I, it is worrisome how weed has been kind of sold on us too. There's too many people, too, too large a percentage of people have developed addictions to weed. And that's, that's the problem with weed that I, you know, I'm concerned with. You know, if it was just recreational use, it'd be no problem. But when they start, people start using it daily, it does get more problematic in the sense that it, it's just harder to, to do what, you know, get involved in activism and to fight the uh, powers that be who are taking more and more from us all the time when, you, you know, you use so much of your spare time to get stoned and you can't be at your best functioning, you know. Yeah, there's definitely a time and a place. I mean, I'm a, I'm a regular yeah. user and I've still managed to, to do a lot of things, climb to pretty well, you know. I do, I do well in my job and everything else, but it's definitely, you can't just be stoned all day every day yeah you can get stoned every day but not all day that's my take but what do you well, if you, you know if if you can uh if you think you can be at your best competency stone great but yeah it's just for a lot of people it seems like it just takes an edge off their their sharpness but uh, especially when kids teenagers in school it just takes it makes it a little harder to to be your best be your best in school no. Yeah, that I would agree with 100%. I wonder, and they kind of use that against you in a way that they can kind of, you know, you know, pot's so close to being being legal, but they can still kind of use it as, oh, he's just a pothead, right? But then Joe blow down the week and drink a fucking fifth of vodka every night and scream at his kids, and that's just fine. Yeah, I mean, sure, alcohol is a problem, too. I just, my book is so long already uh, that I... Um, <laughs> I couldn't get into the alcohol aspect of things too. I had to keep away from the pharmaceuticals for that reason too. It's just too, you know, 450 pages is enough. Yeah. I was going to ask you already. I was going to ask you about that later on about keeping away from the pharmaceuticals. That must've been hard, especially with how it's been going over the last five or 10 years. Yeah. I mean, pharmacy, you know, I get into some of the corruption uh, amongst pharmaceutical companies because some of the pharmaceutical companies were involved in the production of acid. But, um, but I, I just, it's just too huge of another topic that I couldn't, I couldn't get into that. Is that something you might yeah. do in the future? I don't know. It's just, um, I, my next book's probably going to be a novel because, uh, <laughs> I originally started this one as a novel. So, you know, I think I'm going to get into that more, which is going to have some of the similar themes as this book, but in a more entertaining way, hopefully. Yeah. You, you, your book is full of footnotes too and evidence. It's not like oh, you the just chapter wrote names all are down. awesome too. I mean, yeah, yeah. It just reads like an encyclopedia yeah. of drug abuse. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, but I don't want it to be seen as an encyclopedia. I want it to be seen 
as examples of each of these cases because for each of these examples, there's a load of other cases that I just couldn't touch. You know, I couldn't uh, investigate every single musician, for example. Just these guys present, I, to me, uh, good examples of, of the way MKUltra um, targeted us and used these guys as great as they were, uh, manipulated them to promote the drugs, and then when they started getting away from the drugs and getting more into activism, you know, did them in. And that's what happened to Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, and that's the way they were able to warn Mick Jagger, I argue, because, um, you know, Mick Jagger got his first hit of acid from an undercover MKUltra agent, a guy who worked for the FBI, according to a London Daily newspaper. And uh, A.E. Hotchner, Ernest Hemingway's longtime editor, said that, that um, you know, uh, that, that basically that Jagger got his first hit of acid from uh, this guy named Jove or Schneiderman, an alias named Schneiderman. And uh, it was 1967 at a party where the police came and busted everyone uh, a few hours after the Joe commenced him to take his first hit of acid, and uh, they they you know basically arrested everyone but this this uh, undercover FBI agent who had a whole suitcase full of drugs, but um, they wouldn't look in the suitcase. He said he had a film film that was developing, and so he couldn't open the suitcase and ruin the film. The police said, "Oh, no problem," and let you know, let it go. So you know uh, it's that's and then Brian Jones gets murdered when he's sobering up the following year, in 1968. And um, you know, Hotchner has witnesses, the witnesses who saw him get murdered in his own, drowned in his own swimming pool. And the police said, oh, he was an accidental drowning in his own swimming pool. So it's, uh, you know, these are some of the cases and some of the, the ways it, it works. Now, um, people like John Lennon, John Lennon's first hit of acid uh, came from a, a dentist, believe it or not, George Harrison's dentist, who uh, dosed him and uh, George Harrison at a, at a little, you know, dinner gathering. Um, and George Harrison didn't even know what acid was at that point. John Lennon was furious, but then um, people all around them convinced them that it was actually okay and got them to trip longer for another year or two at least. You know, uh, mm. So, yeah. So do you look so, at it more as like a uh, some sort of a movement to dumb down the population or to slow down um, the, pro- the protesters? Or is it, because uh, I mean, there's all this evidence coming out that the CIA itself was selling a lot of these drugs and importing a lot of these drugs. Do you think it was, you know, some of it is just trying to build up a customer base? Yeah. Well, what I said, uh, yeah, what I said a little earlier, I think you had to um, get off the phone for a minute, Darren, but basically um, the CIA has been caught. I show all the evidence that the CIA has been the biggest acid traffickers in the world. And that's uh, constant. That's for decades. It's been that way. Um, this guy, Ronald Stark was, was uh, caught by Italian police and uh, by a British, um, high-level British uh, police detective named uh, Richard Lee, who, um, who under an operation called Operation Julie, that they clashed a song about you know, Julie's working for the drug squad, if you ever heard that song. Um, but that in that operation, in his book about that operation, he said that um, this that Ron Stark's group was trafficking uh, you know, around 200 million hits of acid. And uh, so that's just one of a number of examples I show of how U.S. intelligence was the leading force behind the distribution of acid for, for decades. And um, so I, there's several reasons I show why. And one is to um, get to dumb down the population a bit. Another is to divert uh, youth from what they were getting into, which was civil rights activism, anti-war activism, 
and to divert them uh, from that <laughs> activism. Like Timothy Leary said, turn on, tune in, drop out. It means drop out of society, drop out of that activist work. And that's what he was getting people to do, youth to do. And meanwhile, groups like SDS and the Black Panthers and, and other groups were all trying to get people to, to turn to turn on to activism, not drop out of you know activism. And so, you know, that's just some of the the ways that they were they were using these drugs. But they, I think they, I argue that they're also using these drugs to hurt the uh, hurt the competency of, of these anti-war leaders, such as um, when Students for Democratic Society, a leader of Columbia University, they, which was like top group at the time because they led the first campus-wide takeover of the buildings, of the administrative buildings. Um, they were anti-LSD, but then uh, I showed the evidence that an undercover agent a dose their punch at a party. No and, um, and then uh, Mark Rudd proceeded to act very erratically. This, uh. you know, he was head of Columbia SDS. And I showed how some other SDS leaders nationally acted very erratically after eating acid and to the point that they lost so much respect from the rest of the anti-war movement um, lauding Charles Manson, um, you know, lauding the fact that they hadn't read a book in a year and different other things they were doing, stealing, just uh, doing all kinds of things, getting into fights on the uh, stage of activist conferences, like fighting other activists, pretending like they were tougher than the other activists. Just crazy stuff and just losing so much respect for their groups. So so do you think that, that it worked? I mean, the uh, the propagating of all these drugs into pop culture and all that or do you think part of it backfired it, it, it's still hard to to wrap my head around um you know this this being sort of more damaging than enlightening but i can see what what you're saying here i mean it does seem like uh it's had an effect and i mean it almost turned everything into the hippie movement so it almost turned like right legitimate war protests into sort of like a free love kind of hippie movement that really i could see how it would get you'd get sort of lazy um you know sort of protest wise i guess right and that's exactly it is is like the development of this this um kind of uh tuned out hippie movement and this uh washed out hippie movement now the free love is fine you know the and the the music is great and, you know, and, and just having, you know, just liberating people to have sex, you know, with whoever they want and all that, that's all, all great. It's just the drugs made these people, you know, just less, less competent what they were doing and, and less able to, to both support themselves, you know, financially while also doing activism on the side, you know, and, and be able to make it. And so as they were dropping out, it was just harder to have as much effect over, over changing, you know, the society for the better. And stopping the war. Now, um, I think it was both successful and unsuccessful. I think it was successful at diverting so many people and and causing so many people to burn their minds out a bit. But it was also uh, it didn't it didn't quite stop the activists from from having their their best effect. I'm sorry, we might lose lose you on this line because the lightning's uh, striking. Somebody just get on another line real quick. Sure, sure. Okay, um, you can hear me, right? Yeah. Um, so. I, you know, uh, now activists still were able to do enough good work, and even even those activist leaders who were you know, damaged by all the drugs, they kind of when they sobered up, eventually they, they I think they added, you know, did some good work and added to the cause. But um, you know, activists of course did eventually do enough to help stop the war um, in Vietnam, but it took a long time. It became the longest war ever, and I show the evidence of that, that war 
was majorly over the opium in uh, Vietnam and the Golden Triangle area of Vietnam. They call it the Golden Triangle because it's the best place to grow um, poppies you know, that produce opium and heroin in the world. And uh, John Stockwell, a CIA station chief, told me in 1990 <laughs> that he flew uh, heroin from Vietnam to the United States for the CIA. And uh, I show, you know, quote him in public speeches where he also says that the next uh, best place for growing opium was the Golden Crescent around Afghanistan. Mm. And that built up after we lost Vietnam War and we lost control of a lot of the poppy fields around Vietnam. We focused, you know, with CIA assets that helped us control the Afghanistan area with the Golden Crescent of poppy fields, which is actually at the other end of uh, the same mountain range as the Golden uh, Triangle. And so here we are building up uh, the heroin, you know, the opium uh, poppy fields for producing opium and heroin in around Afghanistan in, uh, late, from the late 70s to 1990. And, um, and you know, Stockwell's talk, talked about that in his public speeches. And so you come around to the 1990, 1991, and you got all the supply of opium, and what do you, you know, but you don't have enough demand for it because before it was targeted into certain communities, particularly communities of color. And so um, I show the evidence that I think they um, tried to do psychological profiling on musicians that would help popularize the drug. Mm. And uh, in doing that, they found that one particular musician was, had a susceptibility to heroin use and, um, you know, and heroin problem, and that was Kurt Cobain. Um, and I show the evidence that they actually, that uh, Courtney Love had been uh, cultivated from a very early age, her biological father said she was actually traveling for weeks with the CIA agent when she was only 17 years old. No way. Was, um, wow. Distributing acid to uh, communities in um, in England, in Liverpool, and then she uh, distributed drugs like crazy in Portland music, music community and then the LA music community. Um, and uh, she was a prostitute from 16 years old on. She was prostituting to... Um, with the uh, Japanese mafia, she was prostituting to, to David Packard of Hewitt Packard, according to uh, her biological father, Hank Harrison. Courtney Love's first husband, this guy, uh, James Moreland, who was a top punk rocker in L.A., said they thought he was marrying a right-wing feminist, but turns out he was marrying a, uh, I mean, he thought he was marrying a punk feminist, and it turns out he was, he was marrying a right-wing Phyllis Diller. And uh, he didn't realize, and she says that she was sleeping with all these army generals in Alaska, and they told her that the wars were all good for us, and we, you know, and uh, he didn't know anything. And so this is what she was, Courtney Love was about. She was uh, some serious mess and doing some really bizarre things, and uh, show the evidence that she was doing those bizarre things because she was either knowingly or unknowingly um, doing, you know, doing the CIA's work. That sounds crazy. Oh, um, it, yeah, I mean, you just got to see the evidence in that chapter of how that all played out. It seems like the overarching reason behind it all stems from the military-industrial complex in a way. Like, it's it's a way to to keep the wars going, and it's also a reason mm -hmm. to invade certain countries as well, to, to keep the whole right. thing rolling. Is that what you found? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you know, the huge profits that are to be made off the off the wars, you keep the military industrial complex, you know, fed. But yeah, also because the areas that we focus wars the most on are the, the biggest places for producing these drugs, the golden crescent for opium, 
the golden triangle for opium and Latin America where the cocaine grows the best. Yeah. And we've, um, we actually saved under a project called, you know, an operation, I mean, called Operation Sunrise. We saved, you know, estimates range that New York Times even said between five and 10,000 in the amounts of Nazis we saved and shipped down to Latin America and we're running uh, cocaine trafficking, you know, helping develop cocaine trafficking networks down there. Oh, wow. And helping helping topple democracies. Like there was a Bolivian cocaine coup that uh, Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon from the World War II, um, helped lead, you know, the cocaine lords to uh, topple those democracy in Bolivia and uh, show a picture of a Nazi flag on top of the Andes from uh, the magazine Covert Action Quarterly, which was uh, started by CIA whistleblower. <laughs> and um, that's some of the stuff that was going on down there. And that was, when would that be then? That what? that era of, of that stuff going on? That would have been after, the, after between the wars, after the Second World War, before the the uh, Vietnam War, or would that be later? Well, they, the networks were being developed between World War II and the Vietnam War, um, in 1967, Klaus Barbie helped uh, capture and kill Che Guevara when he entered Bolivia. As uh, Barbie I was already setting up his networks there in Bolivia. But then by 1980s, when he led the cocaine coup in Bolivia. Uh, but the other Nazis were doing all this at the same time in different other countries in Latin America. And uh, there was uh, you know, cocaine coups in other countries too, and particularly Chile, um, where... Um, guy named Peter Schaefer, a Nazi doctor, and this was all documented by the New York Times. Now, he had a German colony in Chile that was so powerful that had uh, a country's worth of arms and a, a huge amount of uh, intelligence files on all of uh, the Chilean leaders and Chilean politicians. And um, they actually had it using their own airspace where Chile was not allowed to fly over the airspace of this German colony within Chile. That's how powerful they were. Wow. So um, you can just, this is just an example of what was happening in, in a number of countries. And uh, when, when this, when this uh, German colony and this German doctor helped um, overthrow uh, Salvador Allende, who was a doctor who was um, elected, you know, a, president of Chile at that time in 1972, or I think it was, um, he led the coup that, that toppled him. And, uh, and then we got, they had the dictatorship thereafter that was supported by the CIA. But, um, so they all, what, what happened after that too, was an operation called Operation Condor, which was centered in both Chile and Argentina. And, um, and it, it spread in nine countries and it basically killed Latin American leftists all over Latin America and even chased Latin American leftists into Washington, D.C. and planted car bombs on them under their car in Washington, D.C., killing both an American and the uh, Latin American leftists who, who had worked for Salvador Allende. Hmm. So that's some of the stuff that, that they were involved with. And then what about the more recent stuff? Have you, uh, you know, obviously you've been doing your research for a couple decades now. Has things, yeah. has, has it changed? How is that the drug war changed. I mean, now that that pot is legal in a few states and people are, are you know, basically trucking it down to Peru to do ayahuasca. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, hmm, there's a change in our culture with, with regards to drugs. And yet, you know, obviously the wars are still going on. Have you seen any sort of change or any direction that the things are going now? 
Well, I, I don't. I mean, I I think it's just gotten it's just as bad or worse, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Sad, sorry to say. I mean, with Afghanistan, with the Afghanistan war in that Golden Crescent area, it was obvious. Uh, there's an obvious reason besides just you know there, we did want to have a pipe, oil pipeline in Afghanistan, so that's one reason we invaded. Another reason could be for the lithium in Afghanistan, but a third reason, and I'd argue the biggest reason we invaded Afghanistan, and Afghanistan, not coincidentally, became the the largest, the longest, I'm sorry, the longest war in U.S. history. It, it overtook Vietnam as the longest war in U.S. history, is because the fact that the Taliban, for whatever reason, I don't know, they actually banned the poppy fields in Afghanistan for about a year in 2000. And uh, in it lasted for somewhere between 2000 and 2001, about about a year, according to the Washington Post. And when they did that, they took so much uh, heroin off the market and opium off the market that I, heard, I argue that it hurt the coffers of the opium traffickers, which was the CIA. Wow. And um, and also hurt all the money laundering. You might have heard in the news of all the money laundering that goes on in the banks. Yeah. Um, you're talking, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. And when you take all that opium off the market and all that money's lost, you got to invade to, uh, keep things, you know, flowing. Wow. And so I, I argue that that's the reason that they invaded, we invaded. And, uh, once we got in there, all of a sudden you see it, uh, even larger, you know, even more heroin coming into the United States than ever before from the Afghanistan region. Wow. So. Did you ever did you ever hear anything about that that prisoner trade that the U.S. made with uh, was that Bergdahl or something like that? Apparently, one of those guys that was going back to the Middle East was one of the top uh, kingpins for the opium or something like that, or the the uh, the heroin, I guess, out of Af- Afghanistan. Um, what kind of trade are you saying? The the, uh, the prisoner trade. You know how I think think the our, oh yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure I know so much about that. Yeah, I did hear about. Um, uh, oh, I heard about that one prisoner they had who they were. Yeah, they were trying to get out, but he was a. Um, he happened to be a conscientious objector, right? Hmm. I mean, he he was he was like kind of changing to be against the war, right? That guy. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I don't know a lot about that and how that plays, you know, uh, into what what I'm talking about per se, except for the fact that I think he, you know, started getting more conscious about the fact that this is was war for no good reason, you know? I, yeah, no, I think the part that, that I was getting at was that one of the guys that we let out was um, known for, I guess, being like high up in the in the heroin trade in Afghanistan. So it was kind of like we're, oh. you know, needing sort of more support from, from them in, in that regard. So I don't know. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean we, yeah, I mean the people we we installed as the Afghanistan leaders, you know the what the one guy Karzai, his brother was just you know stated to be a top heroin, you know like opium grower, <laughs> and uh, they said, oh well, it's just a shame that the guy we think is the best leader for Afghanistan happens to have a brother who's doing this, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, what a coincidence! Yeah, it's just a coincidence, right? <laughs> just a coincidence. Oh man. So what about what about uh, pot being legal in in the states? What do you think about that now? Well, I do think pot was used to um, to incarcerate tons of youth, but I think first they wanted to popularize as much as possible, and then they can have people under legal authority's thumb. But the question is, is just you know, 
I do, I do am concerned that too many young people are getting into smoking weed at too young of an age, or, you know, it's just getting lower and lower from, you know, 13 and 14 year olds are starting to smoke weed regularly. Yeah. And so I, I think it kind of, you know, when you're going through uh, middle school and high school, when if you start smoking weed that regularly, it can kind of hurt your grades, hurt graduating, or if you do graduate, hurt your chances at college and just kind of, you know, kind of take you out of uh, having a, a, you know, a good job and just being able to, to do what you want to do in terms of both you know, getting, uh, making in society, but also being able to do activism on the side with confidence, you know, versus working two jobs to be able to pay your bills. Yeah. Yeah. Or and pay your that, habit. That, that, that's, that's a bit of a concern there. You know, if people can, you know, want to use it recreationally, you know, no problem with that, but it's when, when they start abusing at a young age, that it becomes a serious problem. You know? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that actually a little bit about, about the addiction side of your, of your, you know, your career and your business. I've had mm-hmm. troubles with it myself. I've been uh, clean and sober for like seven and a quarter years now, I guess. Um, Congratulations. And uh, so I, I've seen a lot of people go through the doors, if you want to say it that way. And, and I have no problem, you know, with people that, that use or drink or whatever. I can, I can handle myself in those situations now. Like basically abstinence has, has been the way I've had to go. So I kind of wanted to ask you about, I don't know, I guess about addiction and what, what you think of, you know, like abstinence or the disease model of addiction. Well, I, I, I agree with the disease model of addiction. Yeah. And for people that have full-fledged addictions, I think uh, that's the best way and abstinence is the best way. Yeah. Um, you know, if people don't, quite fall under you know the category of addiction they are just abusers and they yeah. can actually use it in a way that doesn't cause major problems in their life great then they don't have to be abstinent but when you start seeing it cause uh major problems at least several life areas and you keep using it anyway that's you know one of the signs that that you developed a full-fledged addiction and plus you know having it in your family because it's very genetic and so when that's the case yeah i think um you know uh, abstinence is great and, uh, you know, 12 step groups are great. And, yeah. um, I think, you know, I happen to, uh, talk about Fanny Shakur in my book because, um, she of course developed a crack cocaine addiction and I, I showed the evidence that an undercover agent actually started her crack cocaine addiction. Wow. Um, and, um, w- when that happened, it really hurt, you know, of course, Tupac and, uh, his growing up with her because she was his role model, um, because his Stepfather Matulu Shakur was imprisoned, I argue, under a frame-up, but um, he was a revolutionary, too. He was a assistant director of Lincoln Detox in the Bronx, which was a really cutting-edge addiction treatment center, and which I happened to study at for uh, using acupuncture for drug treatment. Hmm. And um, and it was an amazing place, and they what they did to that place is, is unbelievable. It's really horrible. They killed, uh, the evidence shows that they actually killed the director and killed the lawyer, the best lawyer for the place. And they actually inserted uh, drugs into their body, even though they had no history of any kind of drug use or addiction. They inserted drugs in their body as if making kind of weird statement. You know, the drugs weren't in their bloodstream, just inserted under their skin. It was the strangest thing. Wow. And so horrible. And um, they'd, they'd already uh, defunded the clinic. It was having too much success. I, think, I argue it was having too much success, but yeah. it was also a very radical clinic and doing you know, radical political education. Um, and then they you know, put um, Matulu in jail. But Tupac was without his stepfather for years, and and uh, he ended up being um, 
head of a group called the New African Panthers, which was active in eight cities and trying to replicate the Black Panthers. So he was already a black activist leader before he became a rapper. And uh, he was a brilliant guy, but he only pretended to be a gangster in order to kill the gangs and politicize them. Wow. Uh, which, is part of it, which was part of his Black Panther family's um, kind of movement to uh, get the Bloods and Crips uh, to call peace truces between each other and then turn on to activism. It started in L.A. in 92 and spread nationwide. Hmm. And um, it, it, so Tupac actually uh, took on that movement, to became part of that movement in around, you know, uh, around 92. And uh, that's why he's misunderstood because he was a brilliant guy and he was only pretending to be something else. even though He was just an intellectual prodigy from early on. I, I got all kinds of evidence and accounts of why he, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Wow. Well, a lot of those famous rappers seem like they're pretty brilliant guys. I mean, they a lot of that music is pretty it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, I'm not into it myself. I like some of it back in the nineties, but yeah, yeah, they're not yeah, they're not dumb. Yeah, no, I mean Tupac was something uh really head and shoulders above all else because he just uh I mean, he rewrote Shakespeare plays in high school and directed them and starred in them. Um he did all kinds of incredible things like that. And but when once he um but I do argue that they did get him hooked on weed yeah. and had him popularize weed in a big way. And once he said, hey, I'm, I'm done with weed, I'm going to get out of my life because I just can't. I just was overdoing it. It was numb in my mind because I was used, overusing it. And it had him not recognize that the setup in New York that had him almost killed him in New York. And um, so once he tried to get away from it uh, and he was leaving Death Row Records uh, within eight days of firing the real head of Death Row Records, this guy this white lawyer named Dave Kenner, um, you know, basically the police, the undercover police agents in, in Death Row Records helped orchestrate his murder, according to a high-level uh, police detective. But, wow. but um, yeah, so, you know, they were targeting uh, Kurt Cobain and Tupac Shakur in a, in a major way in the 1990s. We show the evidence of that, and um, so and that continues till today. I mean, I show evidence of how that continues till today. Weed, weed can be such a subtle... A subtle addiction. Do you, do you see people um, actually trying to get help for for weed addiction nowadays, especially because it's so strong? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've got plenty of people that uh, you know had problems with weed and they're trying to trying to stop smoking weed and they're smoking it so regularly and they're dealing with all kinds of problems. And you know, one. So I just yeah. Yeah. I do see that a lot, and um, so I'm glad at least. Uh, Sometimes uh, some of this information I'm talking about, it's in a subtle way, in a very minor way. If the mention of a little bit of this stuff does help people like see it in a different light in terms of doing something about their addiction. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, I think that the the hardest part for people from from my experience and from from friends of mine and people that I know that have, let's say, drug and alcohol issues, the abstinence part is the hard part for them, right? Leaving leaving the alcohol because it's so, so socially accepted, right? Like actually dropping right. dropping that, actually, or weed for that example. Like a lot of people want to, you know, they think the harder drugs is the problem, but if they've cro crossed that line into addiction, if they don't sort of shut the weed or the alcohol down as well, it's just inevitably it just leads back yeah. back to the the main problem. Yeah, e yeah either it can become a substitute problem yeah. you know the weed yeah. or the alcohol or or when you're drunk or stoned if someone offers you your drug of choice you can go back to it so, yeah. yeah oh it doesn't have to be offered geez if, if you're drunk or stoned you could be looking for it 
Right, right, sure. <laughs> There's enough to no doubt. be slammed in your face. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Huh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. So, uh, what else do I want to talk to you about here? But I'll just, I'll just say that uh, Fanny Shakur's recovery is, is really inspiring. And uh, the book, Fanny Shakur, Evolution or Revolutionary, I, I used about eight pages or so of that book to, um, you know, to help people come from denial to the like, you know, fourth or fifth step. Like the Fanny Shakur, you know, details that in that book. And it really helps people, uh, you know, see how, how helpful 12-step groups can be for them yeah, yeah. in that regard. Yeah, can you say that again? That book name? It's called a uh, Fanny Shakur Evolution of a Revolutionary. Evolution. It's actually, okay. the book's actually by Jasmine Guy, but it's like kind of Fanny Shakur telling her story to Jasmine Guy because Jasmine Guy was friends with Tupac. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I I agree with you about the about the disease model and and the twelve. I think the twelve step programs are great. Really, anything you know, being around people that want to look at their own shit and and acknowledge their yeah. defects and stuff, it's it's pretty refreshing actually. Um, yeah. I find that the spiritual community has that, that sort of type of people too, right? People that want to, you know, own, own their, own their own thing. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, stuff like MDMA being used now to treat addiction or, or even, um, uh, you know, well, ayahuasca, that type that, of thing? Yeah. Yeah. MDMA is, you know, is ecstasy or Molly. They're all the same thing. They're all yeah. the same drug. It's, um, you know, I'll just give an example. Politically, the head of biological and chemical warfare in South Africa during apartheid, um, apparently, according to his assistant, his assistant said he had me uh, uh, make a ton of acid. I mean, I'm sorry, a ton of ecstasy and distribute it in the black communities. So he was not trying to just uh, make all the people in the black communities during apartheid feel good. He was trying to hurt their minds. And um, the evidence is clear. There's just so many studies showing that it hurts memory. You know, it can cause long-term depression. It's just, it's a, it's a dangerous drug, you know, a molly and ecstasy. Now, sure, when you're doing it at the moment, it can feel good. I, I remember trying it twice and it felt good for the moment, but it, it's, a, it's very dangerous. And I'm very thankful that I didn't use it again because um, it's just very dangerous stuff. The acid, you know, left me without um, one of my memory skills I lost for the rest of my life. Um, the ecstasy, I don't know what one or two hits did, but um, they're saying that just even a few hits these days can really cause problems long-term. And um, it's not just as safe as people think. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I show the evidence that undercover agents were trying to popularize ecstasy too. And uh, it's been working, you know, obviously oh, yeah. acids all over these music fests and yeah. stuff. And it's just yeah. a real shame. Yeah. Wow, and then they even they even uh, incorporate this type of thing into movements like the Occupy Wall Street. You know, they can. I guess they yeah. can. I mean, I've heard about even uh, false protesters driving around to all these different protests, and then I guess they can target those movements with drugs as well. Well, I you know it's interesting that you heard anecdotes like that because I could certainly believe them. What I, the only thing there's a few things that I I note my book on, on the way they targeted Occupy Wall Street. And one is that uh, the FBI and the banks and you know, Wall Street people were all working together to target Occupy Wall Street. You know, that came out in uh, Freedom of Information Act documents, uh, released documents on the FBI documents. The other thing is that they knew that there was uh, 
murder plans against some Occupy leaders in Texas. And they didn't tell these Occupy leaders in Texas about that. And that's, that's against the law right there. You know, when, when law enforcement hears about murder plans against someone, they're supposed to do something about it. The fact that they weren't doing anything about it suggests that they might have been part of those plans, mm-hmm. which, is, which would just be in line with what they were doing with the counterintelligence program and the CIA's chaos program where they did target activists and targeted them for murder during the 60s, 70s. Kent State um, was was a set-up situation. I just had a whistleblower um, call when I was on a coast-to-coast interview the other day mm-hmm. and just describe how he knew he had inside information and he was part of that whole setup program at Kent State. And a friend of his was part of the National Guard when they were setting up for the you know, shooting of these activists at Kent State. Very terrible. But um, anyway, so with Occupy, what I did find, though, is some filmmakers uh, filmed the police bribing some Occupy activists in Minneapolis to come into their car and go to a warehouse, smoke weed, smoke uh, synthetic weed like K2 and Spice, and be um, offered uh, other drugs and offered money, for, you know, to get other drugs um, to... Uh, mess these, these you know, guys' heads up a bit, but also to interrogate them while they were extremely stoned about the rest of the occupiers and their plans and to, um, you know, just to to hurt their, their movement over there in Minneapolis. And I showed that this was part of it. This was a national program. So there's a good chance that this was happening in other cities too, but they were just caught in Minneapolis. That's crazy. They I mean, you that, can see how easy yeah, it would be that, to derail it. Yeah, they called that film MK Occupy. Obviously, after MK Ultra, <laughs> I I mean, you could just see it, right? Uh, uh, the, some of the the leaders of a little movement, right? You pull them aside, give them some of the, that shit, and then I mean, obviously, your your uh, your desire to protest is going to be changed, no matter what. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's it's gonna yeah. it's gonna affect you. It's gonna it's probably gonna affect you, but the key is, I mean, to interrogate them on everything that was going on and occupy while they're incredibly stoned. I mean, the weed, weed was used as an interrogation drug back in, as early as it was tested that way, back as early as 1949. Really? So, yeah, under yeah under the CIA program then. <laughs> yeah, so it's been, um, you know, it's been used that way. I'm just, they find that when people are incredibly stoned, it's easier to get them to talk. But it's just, um, you know, it was obviously they weren't, weren't up to any good with with that program. And um, I just show the how that was you know, uh, national program. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's scary how the banks and, and the FBI and wall street can all, I don't know. It makes you feel like there's really no, no hope for us the way things are going. Well, I think there's still hope because there's so many of us doing work like we're doing to get the truth out, to get the word out, to, uh, fight, uh, different on different causes. You know, I mean, I'm focusing on, on drugs right now, but, other people are focusing on, you know, whatever, 9-11 are focusing on. The monetary uh, system. Different, different other, all different kinds of other, you know, uh, issues. And um, hopefully, you know, all these different people focusing on their issues are going to have an effect at, at uh, changing things for the better. Yeah, I think so. And, and us being able to talk about this in, in a free format like this and put it out, yeah. I think that's, that can be powerful, I think, in, in the end. Good. Thanks. So, so what, what about, um, 
what are you doing any events are you doing anything else like i wanted to ask you about how your book's been doing it's only been out for a couple months right how's the, how's the response been uh, it's kind of got to be scary in a way too writing about all this stuff it is yeah it is scary but um it's been out for about um i guess about six weeks and uh maybe a little more maybe six or seven weeks and um i, I can't tell how it's doing to be honest i, I don't know yet um <laughs> I got to wait for my publisher to tell me how sales are. And I guess he tells me, you know, and he, it pays me royalties twice a year. But, um, so I just don't know for sure. Um, I, I've had about, uh, over 30 interviews in the last 30 days. Wow. Because, because my publisher hired a, um, PR group for just 30 days to, uh, you know, book me these things as you know. Yeah, um, yeah. and so, um, you know, I don't know if, I mean, you know, I've got, I had at least I probably had, Four or five um, say they won second interviews and one won a third interview. So I guess I'll have more interviews after this. But um, yeah, it's hard to know. It's yeah, it's strange how some people uh, like yourself can accept these ideas, but other groups are saying, "Oh no, this is too crazy." Or, <laughs> really? You know, some, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, supposed leftist anarchist um, bookstores won't, you know, some of them won't touch my book and others are, you know, are happy to have to sell my book, but, but a number of them, it's surprising how, you know, it's divide seems to be divided down the middle. Some, some are willing to it. Some aren't. Um, I, it's supposedly, supposedly Barnes and Noble will sell it, but they, they kind of have a sensory censored way. They do things where they, um, they won't put it on their bookshelves. You know, some of them might, but, uh, the ones near me say, well, we're not allowed to have certain books that are on certain political subjects. So you can order it through Barnes and Noble, and they'll get it in the store in two to two to four days. But they're not they're not um, out there helping you market it. For some yeah. Reason. yeah, yeah, yeah. My publisher says the Barnes and Nobles in his area will will sell his book on their bookshelves. <laughs> who knows? Who knows <laughs> they, how it works? They don't want you walking into the front, you know, the front door, and you got thirty of your books stacked up there on the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it's cute radical for them i I mean it it is pretty radical i just i just hate the it seems like if people won't accept these ideas there's there's this distraction going on of the political system and the left and the right and all this i think it's all just a bunch of hogwash and there's a lot of you know a lot of a lot of mysterious stuff that we should be looking at and a lot of stuff going on that's kind of over and above all that whether it's living in this debt-based economy that we live in being forced to you know, live under nations boring from central banks and all, all the other stuff right. that's going on. It's just all the, all the left and right stuff is just a distraction from all the big stuff. It does seem to be that way. Yeah, it really does. People warn me, oh, don't talk to this uh, one radio guy because no. he's too right wing. And I'm like, <laughs> he's the most accepting guy of my stuff uh, is anyone. You know, it's, I don't care if he's right wing, you know, I, right wing, left wing. He, he he believes what I'm saying, and and I'm supposed to be left wing, but I don't know what the what I am now, really. I mean, because I'm I'm outside of it all, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I it, think once it, you hit this stuff, you it kind of transcends the wings. Yeah, forget about the wings. Just, yeah. yeah, just focus on what you can find out for that sounds legitimate. You know, it sounds like you know, it could be true, whatever. So, are you doing any any um any events or anything like that? Well, I, I had a, I showed a short film and talk and did a talk in uh, New York at a place called Blue Stockings Bookstore Cafe, and um, but I'm just too overwhelmed right now with uh, interviews, um, just to to even hold another event. But um, I guess after you know, come fall, I'm gonna be doing more events. Probably um, got something to 
a professor, a chair of the sociology department that wants me out in California to present in, a, in, in September or October. And um, so I'll probably be doing some presentations over there in Los Angeles around that time. And uh, also try to hit some big cities. I know uh, a good bookstore in Chicago has been highlighting my books. So I'll probably go out there. And there's a one in Philadelphia that's been highlighting my book that yeah. I'll go to and places like that. Yeah. What what about the fear of you know repercussions from from the government to the CIA? I mean, after after researching this and seeing how involved they become in our in our pop culture, does it scare you at all that they're watching you or they might be just paying attention? Me, yes, it, it does scare me, and I think they are watching me. But I just hope to keep doing what I'm doing, and I uh, hope they don't do too much to stop it. I hope they they I mean I, they censor me so much. In, in by way of like not allowing my stuff in print media. I mean, the one, one of the only two or three times I've ever appeared in print media that the person that, uh, that interviewed me and highlighted me was fired within a year. No way. He'd been there about five or six years. Yeah. So, um, they really keep me out of print media because they know that that would give me way too much exposure. I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but that's what it seems to be. I mean, you know, um, but, We'll see. I, I, you know, I, there's so much censorship of my stuff that um, I think they think I'm too marginal that, that I'm not going to be heard by enough people to be a, a worry. Well, that's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Well, th- well, this show that we do is completely uncensored and and really unedited and raw. So, you know, there's nothing's going to be cut out of here, and um, people are going to be. I mean, most of our listeners are pretty open-minded, and we try and Good. we try and find that middle ground, and we, you know, we let people talk about their views and extremes we don't really you know argue with them and and uh so if there's anything else you want to say after hearing that you know you can you can say it here it's not like um you have to worry about it about being edited yeah yeah well um i mean i just definitely definitely think people should keep open minds to all this information they look at my look at my end notes look at my sources if you think they're legitimate sources for this kind of information, and granted, I ever I have over sixteen hundred endnotes for all all this information. Yeah, a lot of it's from government documents, including court documents, uh, CIA documents that were gained through the Freedom of Information Act, FBI documents, same way. Um, mostly mainstream media, believe it or not, just they're going over with a uh, you know very carefully and finding the little tidbits of information that you know in the uh, end of articles. <laughs> is the way they seem to do it. Um, and uh, piecing it all together that way, and eyewitness accounts of different situations, and I did over 100 interviews of different you know, people uh, around these different situations. Um, and that's how I uh, got got this information together. And uh, granted, you know, doing counseling for 25 years, I've gotten people's life stories for the last 25 years and gotten a lot of information that way too that, that led me to a lot of this uh, stuff. Yeah, that must that must help. That must help yeah. to vind- vindicate it a little bit and get that real, real true life sort of story and feeling behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah. So, and, um, no, I appreciate the effort you put into it. I it's it, it's a great sure. book. And the other thing, I, I just want to get you to to plug your first book a little bit too. If if uh, I think people are going to be interested in, in hearing just a bit about that, the FBI war on Tupac and the black leaders. Did that yeah. kind of lead well, into this one? It it did. Well, I actually had started this one first, but this one was by way of, this was going to be a novel at first. And I took that tangent on the Tupac book. 
when I uh, gathered, you know, was gathering information on a character that, that uh, his father was Black Panther killed by the police based on a client of mine that I was counseling in Baltimore City. And um, so I, when I was investigating the Shakurs in New York City and then Tupac was, there's evidence that Tupac was being targeted, I, that's when I, I took that tangent and uh, published an article around that and uh, people close to him you know, urged me to turn it into a book. That's what I did. And um, so, yeah, it's just incredible to find the evidence that, like, the Shakur family were uh, were all involved in all the leading uh, black groups in the, um, from, say, the 1940s to, the, you know, uh, the now. I did and, not know uh, that. Malcolm X's, yeah, Malcolm X's father was in a group called the United Negro Improvement Association. It huh. uh, was Marcus Garvey's group. And uh, Saidi Nava Shakur was uh, heavily involved in that group. Huh. So when Malcolm started his group in New York, uh, Saidi Nava Shakur became his closest confidant in New York. And so the Nava Shakur had a few sons. He had two biological sons, Lamumba Shakur and Zaid Shakur. And they, started, they joined Malcolm X's group in around 1964 or 65. And then Malcolm X was assassinated. And uh, Huey Newton, the founder of the National Black Panthers, asked uh, Lumumba Shakur to found the Harlem Black Panthers and Zaid Shakur to help help found the Bronx Black Panthers. And uh, Matula Shakur was uh, an adopted son of uh, Abba Shakur, and um, he he became co-founding uh, leader of the uh, co-founder of the uh, Republic of New Africa in Detroit at Aretha Franklin's father's church. And um, and so these were you know uh, just a few of these top these are some of these top uh, black groups, activist groups in the country. And so the Shakurs were part of the leadership and founding of these groups. And um, and so when uh, Tupac's mother, uh, Fanny Shakur, married Lumumba Shakur, she was, while he was in jail, she was elected head of the Harlem Black Panthers hmm. and, um, and then had Tupac about a month after she got out of jail, after she was framed with uh, Lumumba and these other uh, Black Panther leaders. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty wild that their history and when you look at the targeting of them and the targeting of Tupac, um, you see that some of the same personnel and same tactics were used um, against the Shakurs as were used against uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and um, believe hmm. it or not. And so that's what got me into covering all these black leaders. Wow. Also that's... against Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. <laughs> that's fascinating. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, Jimi Hendrix's first manager was an MI6 agent. You know, I mean, his his only manager was an MI6 agent, really. Um, he had a manager before the MI6 agent, but there was the other manager couldn't handle how big you know Jimmy was getting, and so the MI6 agent had all these connections. He inserted himself and uh, proceeded to kind of control and sabotage Jimi Hendrix a bit. And when Jimi Hendrix finally fired him within 48 hours, uh, that that manager had him killed and. Uh, and a you know witness said he admitted that this this manager admitted having him killed, and so um, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty horrible. Yeah, that's terrible. Hmm. Yeah, I got to ask you a question about a local a local show. I guess if you've got experience in Baltimore, what'd you think of the Wire? I thought the Wire was great. I um I had I had been uh, counseling about the same time uh -oh. as the person who started the wire was doing his reporting and got a lot of the stories that were in the wire. So I, I recognized some of the stories from some of my clients wow. who told me these stories. 
Yeah, so I thought it was right on and really well done, and just an excellent show. I mean, just just so um, so beyond so many other shows, and in, in the fact that it showed, you know, it kind of gave equal voice to both sides of the issue. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the both police and the uh, people, you know, being you know, drug dealers, and so and it covered a lot of other issues too. So I thought it was great. Yeah, the media, yeah. the media, and the politics behind it. Yeah, it was it was great. Yeah, yeah, a really groundbreaking show. Yeah, right on. No, I just wanted to, <laughs> whenever I hear about Baltimore now, I think about that show. Yeah, good. good. Yeah. I it was so is there anything else uh, you want to mention before we just uh, wrap it up here? I don't want to keep you on too long. I appreciate your time already. Yeah, sure. No, I, I think that's it. I just hope people um, learn about what's really going on behind the scenes and, and decide for themselves what they want to do about it. And I hope they, uh, you know, help their own mind and other people's minds by uh, staying away from dangerous drugs and and help uh, change things for the better based on the information. Right on, John. Well, thanks for all your hard work and and keep in touch. Uh, you know, get your publisher to come back to us when you've got your novel out, and we'll we'll talk about that too. Yeah, sure. Do so. I think I have your your guys' number already from uh, from when you, you booked with my PR agent, a PR person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great. Uh, I'll give you a call again uh, down the road. Great. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks yeah. so much, Graham. Thanks, John. Thank, okay. Thank, Take thanks care, buddy. Aaron, too, if he's still in line. Yeah, I will. Okay, thanks, buddy. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care now. Welcome back to the show. That was our chat with John Potash. Thanks for coming on, John. Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you were here for some of it. I was here for 20 minutes or so. I'd say 15 yeah. or 20 minutes. It's interesting how he said some people can't accept this, his his book, like what, what he's talking about in his book. Like he's been on some shows and they just can't, can't accept it. But uh, it is one of those mind-blowing books. It reminds me of that Dave McGowan research where when you really yeah. get into like the, the counter-conspiracy the type stuff, like that, wow, this is actually, maybe it's not the way we thought it was. Kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough pill to swallow, but if it's, uh, I mean, he's done his homework, so. Yeah, decades of research, all the footnotes right there. I'm looking forward to having him on. It was a great chat. I'm looking forward to having him on when he writes his book, his other book. Coming out with a novel. The novel? Yeah. Didn't you just get another novel in the mail the other day? I did, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's a, more of a sci-fi one, but I'd like to have sort of Maybe a I'll novelist on as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, my trip. Well, actually, I still brought it. I have it here. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'm going to see it quite a few more times. If well, yeah, at work. But the way things happen there, you never know. You never know. So anyways, uh, yeah, thanks, uh, John and... Aaron. come back anytime thank you thank me for engineering thank you for producing <laughs> and thank you guys for helping produce and supporting the show uh find out where to do that more grandamerica.ca slash support 
And uh, yeah, go subscribe to the show. If you find you got a little value from the show, then give a little value back, either monetary, uh, signing people up for the newsletter, patting people on the back, sending us some uh, stories we can use for content on the show or whatever else you can dream up. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we will uh, see you guys next week. I'm buzzing, I'm tripping, sticking easy what I'm sipping. I'll be in a deep freeze in a second. Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain. Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain. I'm buzzing, I'm tripping, sticking easy what I'm sipping. I'll be in a deep freeze in a second. Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain. Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain. I'm buzzing off a dozen E's Swallow damn like the frog dust to flee Smoking ganja trees My brain's in a deep freeze Feeling so high but I'm down on my knees Begging God please erase his memories Please erase his memories I'm out creeping every weekend Snorting in bubs It's hard to resist Guess when I'm pissed I get addicted to drugs I'm buzzing, I'm tripping Sticking easy what I'm sipping I'll be in a deep freeze in a second Drugs are my weapon To cut the pain Erasing every memory to stuck on my brain they can ease what I'm sipping I'll be in a deep freeze in a second Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain I forgot to mention that my soul's in detention The definite depression of life and deception So full of aggression, I'm stressing To find out why life is a blessing Snorting cane cause it numbs the pain To make the sun shine out when there's nothing but rain I'm on a campaign to maintain my life But feels like I stole my heart and cut it out with a knife I'm tripping, sticking easy what I'm sipping I'll be in a deep freeze in a second Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain I'm buzzing, I'm tripping, sticking easy what I'm sipping I'll be in a deep freeze in a second Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain I'm living life at a faster rate Like your heartbeat after you masturbate I'm waiting at heaven's gate but they won't let me in For living a life through a solitude and sin So I begin to make my way to hell on this like kill, the devil could tell that this is where I belong, I explained that I was trying to live life right, but all I could do was wrong, he said your mind was strong, but you folded the evil, thought of living deceitful, cutting your ties with people, you never trusted in God, never once did you go to the steeple, so feeble within, you belong to me now, pin, he said with a grin on his chin, man started to spin like a record on a turntable, I wasn't able to escape like Arnold Schwarzenegger on an escapade to rape, he had too much strength, my body started to bend, my soul was his, if I could live life again, I'd do it by the right business Do everything on God's wish list I wouldn't have slit my wrist Took drugs in front of my kids But you only get one chance, that's the way it is I'm buzzing, I'm tripping Sticking easy what I'm sipping I'll be in a deep freeze in a second Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain I'm buzzing, I'm tripping Sticking easy what I'm sipping I'll be in a deep freeze in a second Drugs are my weapon to cut the pain Erasing every memory that's stuck in my brain